Welcome to Higher Potential with Indeed. A welcoming workplace is built from the ground up with attention to diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and openness. But the way many leaders and companies approach this is full of gray areas, uncertainty, and quite often fear. Higher Potential with Indeed is here to demystify the process through the most powerful channel possible, conversations, groundbreaking ones too. I'm your host, Jay Munro, Senior Country Marketing Manager of Australia at Indeed. And in this podcast series, we'll tackle the issues we face in the modern workplace, from diversity and inclusion, to remote working, accessibility, fair hiring practices, and more. This podcast is an initiative of Indeed.com, the world's number one job site with over 250 million unique visitors every month from over 60 different countries. Before we dive in, I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here today. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the importance of using the right pronouns and gender-inclusive language in the office. There are many components of creating a workplace that's affirming of transgender and non-binary people, but one of the most important pieces comes down to a few small words, such as he, she, and they. Pronouns are one of the most common ways that people are referred to by their gender, and therefore provides one of the greatest opportunities to help honour someone's gender identity. While the words may be small, their impact is profound. Even in the most supportive of environments, many transgender and gender non-conforming individuals are still experiencing uncomfortable conversations with their colleagues, especially around the topic of pronouns. Small tweaks in your workplace can lead to better communication and recognition for everyone helping all your employees bring their true selves to work. To learn more, today we're joined by Alicia Taylor-Jones, Diversity and Inclusion Partner at Australia Post, to understand exactly how pronouns fit into an affirming workplace culture and how all members of the organisation at all levels can participate in supporting transgender and non-binary employees. Now, Alicia, before we start, I wanted to share my pronouns, which are he, him. Uh, Would you like to share yours? Yeah, sure. So my pronouns are she, her, or they, them. Great. And thanks for sharing. Now, could you tell us a little about your role at Australia Post? Sure. So I have the privilege of working in the engagement and diversity team of Australia Post Group as a diversity and inclusion partner. And my primary role is leading the work supporting women and LGBTI inclusion across the enterprise. So my role uh, develops and facilitates programs uh, and staff networks to increase the recruitment, retention, and ideally promotion of staff who identify as women or uh, from the LGBTI plus community, and particularly in parts of the business where they're underrepresented. Great. And in terms of inclusive language, can you share a little more around your experience of creating inclusive language norms, I guess, and working to dismantle binary exclusion? I I think there's some big missions (laughs) embedded in that. (laughs) 
Inclusive language is an, an ongoing process in organisations um, because language is continuously evolving. So what worked a couple of years ago, you know, may have, have changed significantly uh, since. I think as we move further in boosting diversity in our workplaces and particularly in areas where decisions are made and, and leadership roles Language that has become commonplace can be found to be problematic or exclusionary. So we need to keep the communication lines open so that once we know better, we can do better. A language around sex and gender can be particularly fraught. It speaks to a very personal and innate part of our identities. And and anxiety around gendered language starts really young. Like you see the look on people's faces when they're meeting a newborn or a young child for the first time and they can't quite click what they're presuming that that child's gender to be um, if they haven't heard the name or been informed of the gender previously. And there's a social tension about getting it wrong. I think we need to empower people leaders and cascade down to our team members the correct tools around respectful curiosity around gendered language and the ability to have discussions around gender identity that are supportive of all gender expressions. So there are many inclusive language guides uh, that business can access. They lay out scenarios and guidelines um, for how to ask about people's pronouns, how to respond appropriately, um, particularly if you make a mistake. But an important part of this work, I will say, is also setting up systems uh, that have non-binary gender identifiers. So traditionally uh, forms, whether they're physical or digital, um, have had you know, M for male and F for female. Um, what's actually required now is that they have a gender, um, gender X to denote non-binary or gender diverse and an honorific MX or mix alongside Mr, Mrs, Ms, Miss as standard. And we need the prompts to add pronouns into forms and email signatures, for instance, the use of non-binary examples in workplace scenarios and documentation, the inclusion and publication of specific services and benefits for trans and non-binary people. The Australian Workplace Equality Index actually calls this out specifically that you need to utilise these examples and make really clear where you are including uh, non-binary and gender diverse people in your policies and structures because many of them will read themselves out of HR policies and entitlements um, where their relationships and identities are not specifically called out. So it's important to make that explicit. I think we also need to remove barriers wherever possible for people to be addressed and accepted by their chosen identity markers. So change of name and change of gender processes can be really complicated um, especially where HR and payroll systems um, interlink or link in with government agencies such as the tax office, Centrelink, immigration. Um, and for many reasons, usually for, fa- for safety, people who identify as one particular name or gender may not feel able to change their official documents such as passports or birth certificates. So workplaces have an opportunity here to allow for um, so-called preferred names to be used in workplace settings such as on emails and name badges whilst maintaining official names on official internal records. And I think allowing the use of preferred names and pronouns for staff whose official documentation differs is a really key act of allyship um, and support and will assist in the retention of your staff and building an inclusive culture in the workplace. 
Right. And I mean, this is a really big topic and it does get really complex. Um, I think you, you did touch on quite a few things there that I guess center around the, the formal documentation, a lot of business process where changes can be made around titles that can be used. But what about, you know, you mentioned even when we encounter, like in our, our social lives, you, you meet children for the first time and, you know, you don't know what pronouns to use and there can be that awkward uh, situation that we encounter. What about the social aspect in our work life as well? There's always been uh, that language that we've used of, you know, hey guys or morning girls or morning ladies and that very social language. Is it our responsibility as business leaders to start to address that and should we prioritize that as well as you know what we're using on documentation and all the other business forms and and more of that formal uh, language is that as important look ab- absolutely because that's where you that's where you have the opportunity to either build a real connection with your colleagues or your customer or not not only when you get the pronouns perhaps wrong, but the way that you deal with that mistake, the way that you um, respond can really sort of dictate how the rest of your interaction is going to go from there. So uh, you called out about, you know, hey, guys, and and the ladies are getting, you know, ladies are getting together or, or however you want to do that. I think I notice that language now, and that's partly because I'm embedded in it, like like it's part of my job to be embedded in it every day. Rather than, okay, ladies and gentlemen, for instance, you can say, hey, everybody. I, I used to joke in a lecture, I'd say, you know, hey, peeps is my thing because I'm like down with the kids and everything, <laughs> and cl- like clearly not. But gender-neutral language, it's um, in those social settings when addressing a group of people are, are really easy swaps. Um, people, hey people, hey folks, hey everybody, um, anything like that works fine. Uh, in your interactions with somebody where you can't quite work out what gender um, pronouns they might use by their gender expression, using they or them as default until you know better um, is a pretty safe bet until they indicate themselves um, what pronouns they use. But if you you feel that's just not going to work for you or perhaps the conversation goes on a bit too long and you are still unsure, you can ask. And I think the best way of asking is um, just like you did at the start of this interview, Jay, is offering your own pronouns first and just say, I just want to be clear, I use these pronouns. Can I ask what pronouns do you use? And and I think that's a that's a really good tip, and that was going to be my question because it's it's really hard to change our behaviours and the way that we approach things. And I think often we might be starting a conversation, or we might say something, and then we notice it may not have gone over, you know, maybe as well as we have uh, anticipated, and you notice that little breath. Uh, or that look on their face, but we continue on and you don't address it in the moment. So would you suggest any other ways that we could potentially start to, I guess, try and introduce that change? Yeah, I think um, as with any 
cultural change? Do you have a variety of tools at your disposal to um, support, I guess, desired behaviours and to to mitigate or dissuade um, from behaviours and, and language and things that you don't want in the workplace? So certainly in formal settings and, and particularly I would call out if you're cisgender, if you identify with the gender that you're assigned at birth or shortly thereafter, informal and professional settings, introducing yourself with your pronouns. Just lead, lead from the front. This is this is your everyday practice and practice it yourself. Hold yourself accountable for trying to do that with all your interactions. Adding your, your pronouns onto your email signature as well. So, you know, next to your name, having in brackets what pronouns you use and normalising that as part of the structure, your standard structure of your corporate email address. This is also about educating yourself. So there's there's a myriad of resources out there. You know, Minus 18 do some fabulous ones, the Human Rights Commission, um, Pride in Diversity, Diversity Council of Australia, or just have a Google. Um, you'll find lots of guides around inclusive language and how to, to be supportive or... Um, use gender-inclusive language for non-binary and gender-diverse people. But one thing I, the reason I call out those resources is I would suggest where possible you do that first before you try and draw on the experience of somebody who um, you know to be um, non-binary or gender-diverse. You know, they, um, it takes emotional time and emotional energy to educate people about aspects of your identity. And I think, you know, if you're having to do that day in, day out with all of your interactions, that could be rather exhausting. Mm. Now, I guess, you know, we've talked about the social missteps or the accidents, and and that's one thing um, and something that you certainly can be sincerely apologetic about. But what about intentional misuse or misgendering? and elements of microaggression. Can you talk us through some of that? Yeah, sure. Talking from Australia Post perspective, you know, Australia Post is 211 years old. We have a, a long legacy and with that comes a, a way of working that has been in place for a really long time. And we have staff that have incredibly long tenure as well, so we're used to doing things a certain way. And that being being acceptable practice. So shifts can be difficult. Um, as far as that, you know, microaggressions and really what we're talking about, when it's intentional, we're starting to go into the territory of, of harassment, bullying or discrimination. Most businesses will have their, their harassment, bullying and discrimination policies in practice and their, their complaints process, which can be incredibly stressful uh, for people to go to it and really challenging. So I think you need to get ahead of it. The standard that you want for your staff is one of inclusion and signalling that deliberate misgendering or misnaming of non-binary or gender-diverse staff isn't, an, isn't okay. You can signal that through through training, obviously, um, through collateral that you have on your internet or throughout your business and posters on the like on what misgendering is, why it's harmful, how you can avoid it. 
I say it's one thing to make a mistake and and apologize and and move the conversation forward. It's another to do it intentionally. And I think we also need to empower other staff as allies to be active bystanders in situations like this. I know there's a lot of training out there on active bystanders, particularly in the sexual harassment um, space. And I think it it applies here as well. If you see somebody saying something or behaving in a way that's inappropriate or is um, causing harm to one of your colleagues, we need to empower our staff to be able to step up and say something appropriate, say something effective, show support for the person affected um, and know how they can escalate if need be through um, formal processes. And what about other supports for individuals who may be transgender or non-binary who may be finding it difficult we may not even know that they may be having difficulties or struggles what other supports could we be considering to introduce that could be accessible without kind of outing them so to speak yeah absolutely so i know we we like many organizations have an employee assistance program which is an externally resourced, you know, web chat, email, phone line um, for counselling and psychologists. We have a specific number and contact through that for LGBTI staff. And so there's staff from the LGBTI community can know that if they're contacting that number because they're struggling, um, they will be in contact with another member of the LGBTI community who doesn't need to be educated in appropriate inclusive language or what their identity means um, or what some of the common experiences of LGBTI people are in the workplace. They can start having conversations around their challenges, their issues, their mental health um, or their situation at work without having to do a whole education piece beforehand, which I know particularly for trans and non-binary staff can be a big part of their experience when engaging with with the health system. More broadly on on formal supports, particularly for for people who are affirming their gender or transitioning, having a gender affirmation guide in the workplace is something we have in draft form at the moment Um, and several organisations do. We drafted one when I worked at RMIT University for supporting our um, staff and students who may be going through a gender transition. And guys like that, their very presence signals the fact that you understand that this could be a part of um, a staff member's life journey. And it also makes clear what supports and entitlements and what your processes as a business are for supporting them to change their gender markers, change their names, whether they're entitled to leave, whether it be for medical or social transition or both. And if there isn't specific uh, gender affirmation leave, you know, whether they can access personal leave or or sick leave or the like to be able to support them in making appointments, um, going and changing documents, recovering from surgery if that's a path they're choosing as well. Um, I think having the you know, clearly articulated policies, procedures that are really readily available for all staff as well, signals to to allies and um, the rest of your uh, workplace that this is something that the 
your workplace supports and stands by and is accommodating of. And in terms of the supports and policies um, that a business can start to implement in their organisation, I'm, I'm curious about the recruitment process. When you're trying to attract people into a business, we often see in the recruitment process as a question, do you need extra supports or do you identify as being from a particular group or, or requiring extra assistance during the recruitment process? But you don't often see a question around this. Is there anything that we should be considering in this space? Should we be asking pronouns? Should we be asking if there's any extra support or awareness? Is there any guidance we should be giving recruiters or hiring managers or education? Is this an area that we should be thinking about or just wait until maybe we give an offer to someone and then deal with it then? Trans and non-binary can job candidates or job applicants do suffer from some significant barriers in um, applying for work, particularly if their experience that's documented in their resume might have been under a previous name. Um, there's, you know, there's challenges, I guess, around um, using previous professional referees who may have known them um, as a, a different name and as a different gender. And we do we suffer a a real loss and attrition around trans and non-binary staff who start to take steps to to socially or medically transition because it's a real challenge to stay in the workplace to come to work you know one day as one identity and then a couple of weeks later come back um saying i use different pronouns i have a different name and i'm expressing my gender differently uh, so a lot of staff will will leave if they're going to undertake a transition journey, will leave one workplace as one identity and start work at another place with their new affirmed gender and, and name and language. So if we as workplaces can clearly document our supports and you know have our pride networks in place as well that are supporting trans and gender diverse staff to to stay in the workplace and to undertake those affirmational transition journeys in situ with supported leave, we we save save talent. We keep talent. And the better that we do in creating a psychologically safe environment for that to happen, I think the the greater, you know, loyalty and productivity and engagement in particular we get from those staff. From a recruitment perspective, I know there are, you can run training with talent acquisition about transgender candidates, how to navigate respectfully conversations around where their identity and previous roles that they're referring to might have been different to how they're presenting to you as a candidate and an applicant. And I think that's an important piece of work for getting people into the business. From my area, I ideally just want our staff to be able to stay. I think um, what you mentioned there, leaving uh, before and then before their transition journey and joining a different business once they've transitioned, I mean, that's really disappointing and kind of ludicrous that we're losing, you know, not just a person, but also the skill and experience, which that's not changing. 
you know, it's the same skill and experience regardless of that person changing gender or yeah, it just doesn't really add up at all. Yeah, it, it is a significant loss and you're right, you're not losing their experience, you're not losing their organisational knowledge. Or even um, them really or their personality. No. Um, if anything, you're you're probably going to have a much more engaged, much happier employee that, you know, if they can feel comfortable bringing their their whole selves um, and identity to the workplace where they've been holding back or um, dealing, I guess, with the all the issues that come up around um, gender when you're not being able to be your authentic gender and, and present as such in a workplace setting. If you can manage that process and support people through that process, you're, you're going to have a highly engaged staff member with whom, you know, experience and organisational knowledge you'll retain. Yeah. And that's that's a financial saving as well. Training people is expensive. Recruiting is expensive. Yeah, it takes time and effort. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also managing our own perceptions and the perceptions of, you know, all of their colleagues around them. You know, it is a change of what we expect to see or other people expect to see. So it is managing that. And that's a big part of in, so in the affirmation guide that we've drafted, a big part of that is working with people leaders and managers in talking with the affected staff member about, okay, what do you want communicated to the team? When do you want this communicated to the team and how? And really holding space for for respectful curiosity of other team members, but outlining really clear boundaries around respect, intrusive questioning and the like, and just mapping out that how you would like that journey of returning from leave or transitioning in the workplace to go and making sure that it's it's led by the person who is affirming their gender or um, undergoing the transition. Now, in terms of Australia Post, you're a very large, diverse organisation. You know, you have uh, office staff, you've got retail staff, you have uh, postal delivery officers. Now, I'd expect that you have all different levels of understanding of what diversity is and different encounters of diversity as well. In terms of messaging and education, does that take a different approach across those different areas of the business and how do you tackle that? It's not hugely different. I absolutely take your point about the the, the diversity of our workforce and, and roles within Australia Post and, and our workplaces. So as you pointed out, we have facilities, you know, uh, delivery facilities, we have truck drivers, we've got retail workers, we've got people in a con- contact call centres, we have corporate staff in head offices and they all have very different experiences of Australia Post as an employer and, and work as a workplace. As far as communications around diversity, I think we we drill down to really fundamentally it's about respecting your colleagues and it's about fostering a sense of belonging within their individual workplaces. So from a broad brush perspective, conversations around what our expectations as a business are around their leadership expectations, behavioural expectations and conduct, that's pretty across the board 
Um, we expect you to to be respectful of your colleagues. We expect you to understand that we are part, we are deeply embedded in the Australian community and the Australian community itself is incredibly diverse, even if their particular social, you know, peer group or, or social network isn't. So we do expect them to, you know, all of our staff to to be courteous, to be respectful, to to not cause harm to, you know, to other colleagues and, and customers. So I think that conversation is is kind of the same regardless of where you are in the business. I think where we end up with different conversations is where we are aware that we have behaviours or language happening in a particular workplace that doesn't meet those expectations and we will actually have more pointed conversations around what the expectations are, the why of it for both their experience in the workplace and everybody else, the legal obligations that Australia Post has as an employer as well in regards to direct and indirect discrimination versus conversations we'll have with leaders in the business, and that that can be just team leaders, people leaders, right through to the executive around how they position themselves as showing inclusivity as one of our core values, and it is at Australia Post one of the core four values, how they demonstrate that in the ways that they work with their teams, the way that they implement policy and procedures and give them a broader understanding, I guess, of what the impact is of doing that well and the impact of doing it badly. It's interesting to hear that inclusivity is one of your core values there. Uh, Alicia, final question, which is how we finish every episode of High Potential with Indeed, is what will it ultimately take to ensure a better and more inclusive workplace in the future? Look, I think it's it's going to take... Um, it's going to take everybody to to shift the dial significantly in re- in relation to culture and inclusivity. I think those of us who have privilege and um, and everybody does to one way or another, but those of us with privilege, you know, need to step back a bit and amplify the voices of those who are, are often un- unheard or actively, you know, silenced or or disengaged. Is going to mean leaning into discomfort around our own assumptions and our own experiences, owning where we may have not done well previously. Maybe we got it wrong before and the fact that we recognise it now means we have the ability to act better and, and to be better and to do better and I think we need to own that. I think it means challenging a, a range of assumptions about who we may hold around who our colleagues are, who our customers are, and who we we have in our professional spaces. Uh, it means listening to people of diverse backgrounds and experiences, and, and believing them when they share their experiences and and how life is for them. And ultimately, it's going to mean promoting people from diverse backgrounds and identities to positions of influence and leadership, where they can. Um, take the lead in shaping our policies and systems and processes to reflect a broader range of people. Alicia, thank you so much for joining me today. Really great conversation that shows how just a few small tweaks can really help all of our employees bring their true selves to work. Thanks for having me, Jay. Thank you for listening to High Potential with Indeed. Before you go and start building a better workplace, 
Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review if you've found this podcast helpful. If you'd like to read our full DNI report, click the link in this episode's description and fill out the form. Just a quick note, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the guest do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Indeed. Additionally, the information in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all content we discuss is for general informational purposes only, and you should consult with a legal professional for any legal issues you may be experiencing.